<laughs> I like that call for neuro privacy. <laughs> Welcome to Twirl the Week in Health Law, the health policy whiplash podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on October 24th, 2017. I'm Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host, who any day now will declare an opioid state of emergency, is... Frank Pasquale, a professor of law at the University of Maryland Francis King Carey School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Well, a few words, Frank, if I may, about the data conference we had at our place last Last week, plenty of pod friends or and or health prof friends there, including Sharon Hoffman, Bob Evans, Craig Conneth, Leslie Francis, Mark Rothstein, and we had speakers from IU's famous Regenstrief Institute. Indeed, their CEO Peter Emby was our keynote speaker. We had reps from the NIH, Kelly Business School, met our medical school, Axiom, folks from practice, on and on. Uh, it was great fun, and uh, I certainly learned a lot. Congratulations. Nick. I thought that the Twitter commentary was scintillating, and I can't imagine what it would have been like to be there. So that's great. This week, we greet Amanda Postelnik. Uh, Amanda is someone we've been trying to get on the show and schedule for a long time, even though she's in the office down the corridor from Frank. <laughs> it, it's taken a while, but we are so delighted. Uh, Amanda is professor of law at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law, where she teaches criminal law, evidence, and law and neuroscience. Her current research includes works on modern Models of mind in criminal law, evidentiary issues presented by neuroscientific work on memory, and the role of pain in different legal domains. Um, truly one of our leading uh, new interdisciplinary scholars. Um, it's a real pleasure to finally welcome you to the pod, Amanda. Thank you very much, Nick and Frank. Well, Frank, as we speak today, there is still considerable uncertainty whether the Murray Alexander Insurance Market Stabilization Bill will get to a vote. I have to say, I'm not exactly uh, optimistic. Some people are talking about the politics being too difficult to uh, actually get it to a freestanding vote, but uh, uh, maybe it'll get wrapped into some other legislation uh, later in the year, but uh, maybe too late by now. As most of you know, the components of the Murray Alexander plan are two years of subsidy repayments uh, for uh, the CSR cost sharing, some relaxation of the Section 1332 waiver affordability guardrail, the restoration of the $106 million pre-enrollment outreach funding. And uh, quite interesting, the uh, the expanding eligibility for catastrophic copper plans. They don't get subsidies, um, but the healthier, younger purchasers who are likely to buy those will somehow find themselves in the exchange risk pool, which might make the pool more attractive to insurers. And I think uh, the other only really important piece, there is some funding for state reinsurance programs. As I recall, Frank, I, I think it's Minnesota that's done well with, with a state reinsurance program. Yes, a lot of complexity. And it seems like the theme here is the Democrats have to make some concessions about structural changes in terms of bringing in more of these uh, junkier plans and uh, more state flexibility in exchange for sort of a finger in the dike or putting out the fire, or what have you, in terms of the CSRs. And I think that's more evidence for sort of a theory of um, a good cop, bad cop routine between Trump and the congressional Republicans. 
republics, right? I mean, the idea might be that Trump can keep creating crises, and then the baseline of what's happening uh, in the country is sort of set so low that the Democrats have to make concessions with respect to you know issues like these structural concessions, uh, just in order to get back to where they were before um, Trump started messing with CR- CSRs, etc. That's my worry. I don't know. Maybe I'm overreading it, and maybe that's just being too um, skeptical. And one little piece of evidence that I am overreading it might be the issue with respect to the Iowa um, application for flexibility with respect to it. Basically, it was trying to make available more plans that would have lower premiums, but higher out-of-pocket costs. So talking about those affordability guardrails, I guess, uh, taking the guardrails off of what could be a very uh, steep uh, cliff. And it looks as though essentially that has not been, either that it has not been accepted. I mean, Iowa, basically the news today was that it had withdrawn its application to be able to make, to push these plans. And there was a report from the Washington Post in August that Trump had asked Seema Verma to reject the Iowa plan, but some saw that as an effort to keep premiums high. So it's very hard to figure out, you know, what what's going on there. I mean, when I teach this stuff, when I teach the state flexibility stuff, I point out that, you know, the flexibility is supposed to only be granted if the state can demonstrate that certain benchmarks are meant by the um, new, more flexible program. I think it's pretty clear that Iowa would not meet those benchmarks. But, you know, and so maybe that's the rationale for why they're withdrawing, but it's really murky right now. Yeah. So back to your first point about sort of motivation, Uh, certainly the the White House whiplash over whether it supports Mary Alexander or not, that seems to be accompanied by a rumor that what the White House wants to be included in Murray Alexander and why the Dems are saying, no, 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 the deal is done. We're not reopening it was the White House still wants the mandates repealed and wants to include repeal of the mandates in Murray Alexander. Now, that is either outright sabotage, right? Or it's just clueless. Because if you take out the mandates, you've got a two-legged stool and the whole thing comes crashing down. So unless you believe that people will say that it wasn't sabotage, it was a fundamental problem with the ACA... Um, which is unlikely now, or you just don't understand how these things work, um, which is kind of sad. Um, and anyway, also, uh, <laughs> across town, the IRS <laughs> announced earlier in the week that they would still be enforcing the mandates, notwithstanding that executive order from months ago. Yes. <laughs> so uh, uh, that's, that's a classic. But let's talk a little bit more about Iowa, because I have to say one of the finest pieces I have read for a while was a story in Politico magazine this week by Paul Demko, um, which is a very deep dive into sort of the toxic mess of the individual health insurance market in Iowa. And there's so much value in Demko's piece. Um, Obviously, this is a deeply rural state, um, and that means hospitals are spread out with miles between them, and that means they have leverage over insurers because 
because the insurers can't play one hospital off over another when they're trying to put together networks because the next hospital is three hours ago away and so no one's going to go to it. Um, about half of the state's individual market customers have remained in non-compliant plans, wow. which means they're not available for the exchange pool. So the pool is horrid. Um, the co-op plan collapsed, as did so many others. Um, the state's major insurer took an instant dislike to exchange policies and decided it wouldn't sell on the exchange for the first three months. And then when it did come in, it found itself insuring um, this uh, infamous um, hemophiliac teenager whose treatment costs a million dollars per month. And I think I remember from a previous show we talked about just that one person was responsible maybe for about 10% of the increase this year. So it is simply a disaster, uh, the Iowa market. It was a disaster before um, the, the Affordable Care Act. It is certainly a disaster now. So that 1332 waiver request was really a Hail Mary pass. Um, and uh, it, it, it was so far outside the guardrails. It was pretty much a repeal of the ACA for Iowa. But um, big props to Demco for the piece. And also, I think, a useful reminder that healthcare health policy is local, that we tend to talk in, particularly after the federalization of healthcare from by the ACA, we tend to talk about U.S. healthcare. But that's a mistake. We do have to concentrate on the individual states and the regions. Yes, agreed. Uh, that piece is outstanding. And I think understanding the Iowa market is really helpful to think about why this was either rejected or not rejected. I suppose that, you know, if it's that close to the brink of collapsing entirely, maybe that would help with the sort of Trump narrative of um, the ACA just being on its last legs. Speaking of which, um, there was a piece by Abby Gluck, a friend of her show, friend of the show uh, from yes. uh, Yale Law, um, who had this very interesting piece in Vox on, is Trump's effort to sabotage the ACA so far from our usual presumption of regularity in executive or administrative conduct that it may either violate the Constitution's Take Care Clause or the Administrative Procedure Act? And this is something I actually worked through with my health law class, uh, or actually my administrative law class um, recently, because I think it raises such interesting questions. I mean, she gave these various uh, examples of, for example, shutting down the website for 12 hours each Sunday, um, cutting down the advertising budget from $100 to $10 million without offering any sort of budgetary rationale, including the fact that that money had already been collected insurers. Um, there were other examples. Uh, I think that perhaps some of the rumors about waivers being denied in order to uh, increase uh, chaos in, mar in state insurance markets may fit into that narrative. But the problem that I thought was, and this was some very thoughtful comments from uh, students in the class is they, they pointed out, first of all, that although we might have this list of actions that Trump is taking that seem to be directly flying in the face of the ACA, it's not fair for the courts to really consider this unless they look at all actions taken by the administration. And perhaps there's a critical mass of action to counterbalance the anti-ACA action. And secondly, and this is something that I was sort of just thinking about in terms of, you know, the Lujan factors for standing, you know, even if you were to bring this lawsuit and say, for example, that these things were arbitrary and capricious, uh, or you know, under APA Section 7061, or other, uh, you know, trying to get uh, demand agency action that has been unreasonably withheld. 
Courts may say, well, what's the remedy you're asking us to craft, right? And this is an area where I think that would be hard under the APA to figure out. Even the thing with the 12-hour uh, website shutdown, that seems long. But on the other hand, are courts really going to want to uh, scrutinize how long a, the HHS or the entity administering healthcare.gov needs to shut it down? So it's a very difficult question, you know, and I think that we're going to be wrestling with some cutting edge, completely new questions in both administrative and constitutional law when you have an administration that simultaneously is charged with uh, running the statute and applying the statute and yet just continually puts out press releases. You know, it's not just Trump, it's press releases from HHS that are saying that the ACA is doomed, it's over, it's dead, etc. Very hard to figure out whether or how courts should get involved there. Yes, and I think there was some preview of that remedy issue in some of the oral argument in the California case that's been filed by the state attorneys general um, with regard to the CSRs. Uh, yes. And uh, it, the, the tea leaf readers were suggesting that the judge was unimpressed by the attorney general's remedy arguments, which could at least be one uh, reason why that injunction might fail. Uh, we're probably expecting that later today or tomorrow. The other thing, and Frank, let me pose this as a question because um, I missed the class on standing. <laughs> I think I... <laughs> oh my, it is a nightmare. I think I, think I, I think I had a hangover that day. Is that going to be part of the puzzle as we go into these sort of challenges uh, to the administration? Oh boy, I really have to think about it. I mean, the question that I was thinking about in reading um, Abby Gluck's piece was, you know, it's, it's both so strongly argued and so compelling. And then I was thinking, well, why hasn't someone like Medicare Rights Center, or well, maybe it's not in their bailiwick, but there's got to be somebody that would launch this lawsuit if it were. Because I do think there's there's some funding out there for just uh, creative legal challenges to this sort of unprecedented uh, administrative chaos and sort of subversion of extant legislation. But then, yeah, I started thinking about some of the issues with respect to the, um, the standing and the causation redressability types of issues. And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I really have to think hard about it because it, on the one hand, wasn't it the case that when the CSR lawsuit was originally filed, there were all sorts of concerns about standing and somehow they got over that hurdle. Um, but certainly, I don't think that their success is easily transferable to those uh, chal others uh, challenging the administration. Hey, so just one other thing I wanted to bring up. Um, when you were talking about the current administration's sort of uh, tendency to promote, shall we say, junk plans, I recall mentioning on the last show that it'll be some months before we see any rulemaking on the association plans and the other inexpensive plans promoted by the president in his recent executive order. But it's not too early to collect data. And the New York Times yesterday had some great reporting on the history of insolvency and fraud associated with these types of plans. Um, you know, you, you, you can't wait to have them back. They've, they've been so amazingly unsuccessful. And my, my eyes were were uh, particularly attracted to a quote from a past Labor Department investigator that the executive order was, quote, summoning back demons from 
the deep, unquote. <laughs> oh, my. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, that reminds me of the Vox piece uh, entitled Tennessee Has Insurance Rules Like the One Trump Has Opposed, It's Not Going Well, by uh, Sarah Cliff, um, quoting the um, Society of Actuaries who estimated that Tennessee's marketplace has the sickest enrollees in the country, right? Because you just have all these folks who are trying to get out of the marketplace onto these AHPs. So, yeah, summoning demons from the past uh, sounds quite apropos. Um, <laughs> all right. I mean, and there are a couple other items I just wanted to bring up, if, uh, just in terms of uh, disasters and sort of a theory that maybe that might be the theme of uh, today's uh, lightning round, which is that you know, we're still, um, well, weeks after Maria, and we still have a surgery by flashlight, by, by flashlight because a lot of hospitals lack electricity. Um, we have worries about waterborne diseases. We have tons of, you know, public, it's 33 days after Hurricane Maria made landfall, and only 23% of, elect- of residents have electricity, according to status.pr, which sort of keeps up with these things. And it just seems as though there's utter sluggishness. And um, one of the tragedies here uh, is that there are actually cases after Katrina where people sued uh, FEMA for uh, not providing the aid that they were due on due process grounds. And essentially, they lost those cases. And it seems as though the court's sluggishness will match the administration's sluggishness with respect to any sort of claim by individuals for more rapid help. So, you know, the Puerto Rico situation is tragic. We also have a very good piece in Politico this week by Brianna Ailey about opioids, HIV. Uh, I saw another piece about rise of hepatitis as sequelae from the opioid epidemic. So the opioid epidemic is is going rather quickly from being something that is uh, about the painkiller to the spread of all sorts of needle-borne diseases, which of course we we had talked about earlier in the show with respect to uh, HIV, um, I believe in Indiana and some other states, but which you know has now gone to many other forms of disease. And it just is one of these crises that just keeps rolling onward. Yeah, we do have um, about 36, I think, billion dollars that Congress appropriated today for half of which is to go to Puerto Rico, but um, whether that would be anywhere close enough. One of the feel-good stories I've been following is um, uh, the work of Chef Jose Andres, a celebrity chef who went back to Puerto Rico and um, has already served over a million and a half meals to um, the folks there, um, setting up kitchens all over the place. And this is this is a chef doing what uh, FEMA wow. has had problems doing. Um, it's remarkable. So he has a, a nonprofit that's uh, doing this. So uh, if you do a quick Google for Chef uh, Jose Andres and maybe, uh, as I did, uh, send a small donation, uh, you could be serving a few thousand people just from a small donation. Yes, that's, that is great. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes in terms of a link to his efforts. So Amanda, uh, we're fortunate to have such a great expert on this fascinating uh, area of neuroscience and the law. But it is, I would guess, not an area that is of particular familiarity with a lot of our listeners. So if I may ask you just to sort of do a gentle introduction to health law people, health law practitioners as to what this topic is and what sort of areas of law you see this influencing. There's a lot of interest in law and neuroscience as a subject uh, going back 
about a dozen years uh, to the founding of the MacArthur Project, its practical impact on law has not yet been significant, and I think that's appropriate. Law and neuroscience is a way of exploring questions different. What might we conceptualize differently using a new set of tools? Not necessarily, how can I take this tool and put it into practice right now? There's a history of the U.S. legal system and other European legal systems looking to the brain science of their day for simple solutions to complicated social problems. This history has often been very ugly. Uh, The use of phrenology and lobotomy and deeply flawed racial science to make arguments that took race, class, and gender assumptions and reified them uh, by claiming that the brains of different groups of people demonstrated their relative superiority or inferiority. In this current iteration of the law's interest in brain science, there are tremendously thoughtful scientists and scholars who are aware of these mistakes and are determined not to make them again. And that is imbuing this current uh, set of work with some much needed humility, as well as stronger historical and philosophical roots. If I could point to some areas of impact, uh, I do think it has had particular impact in supporting an otherwise already developing trend toward changing our legal considerations of juvenile difference. Everybody knows that uh, kids are different than adults, and yet the ways in which uh, juveniles differ from adults and the ways in which typical development and atypical development may unfold in juveniles has been understudied, uh, under-theorized, and incorporated in very erratic ways into the law. Uh, Indeed, Nick's wife, Tracy, has done some extraordinary work in this area. So we really see this in the juveniles area. Some other areas where I think we can have impact are in pain, uh, which I can talk about more if you like. And in the criminal context, I hope perhaps there will be the opportunity to use brain science, possibly somewhat instrumentally, to enhance or modify our conceptions of which actors should have an excuse of partial irresponsibility based on severe mental illness or traumatic brain injury. Perhaps if we could talk about you know some of your work at the Center for Law, Brain, Behavior, and I was thinking in particular about the um, blog symposium that you organized at the Petrie Flom blog uh, over at Bill of, Bill of Health uh, at Harvard Law School on the future for brain-based pain imaging in law. And just some of your thoughts on the topic, that symposium and the issue in general. And one of the most interesting contributions to that blog symposium was yours, Frank. Oh, you're too kind. (laughs) (laughs) So, dear listeners, the topic of Frank's post, and one that I think is worth starting with, raises the issue of who do we measure and what kinds of measurement tools do we use? How does that vary across contexts? So many people come into the legal system with assertions of pain or with claims of wrong that relate to pain. And because there's money at stake and because the individuals who come to the legal system for disability or workers' compensation or plaintiffs seeking damages may not have a very good uh, reputation or there are some social priors that suggest they may this, these categories may be more prone to uh, um, using the system for their benefit, whether or not that's empirically true. There has been a long-standing desire to measure whose pain is real, just as law and neuroscience has a deep history in uh, 
the US and Europe going back a couple hundred years, there has also been a very long history of pain detection machines. fMRI is not the first of them. So uh, in, in fact, the creator of Wonder Woman, who invented one of the first polygraph machines, also was interested in measuring pain. And now fMRI and EEG are tools that potentially could measure pain. At the same time, I would be very, I think it would be very unfortunate if these tools were used to supersede individual narratives of their experience and other factual data that may tell us a great deal more than what their brain scans might say. Whether a person has changed their life activities, the course of medical treatment they've endured, all of these kinds of facts are more illustrative than brain scans. So if I'm saying these kinds of facts are more illustrative than brain scans and that we should resist using brain scans as a way of uh, further quantifying and further dehumanizing somewhat marginalized groups. Why am I hopeful and aspirational about this area? We all experience pain, but by its aversive nature, most of us try to think about it as little as possible. And yet, pain is a major reason that people find their way into the legal system, whether it's for literal pain, uh, as might be at issue in a disability matter, or whether for more experiential and subjective pains like pain and suffering damage or emotional harms. So pain is an enormous issue in itself within the legal system involving tens of thousands of cases and billions of dollars. It also has some interesting philosophical implications for understanding subjective states, how the law conceptualizes subjective states and the mind-body relationship, and where or whether different kinds of neuroimaging can enhance our understanding of uh, the mind-body interplay. I know almost nothing about this area, but I do know that if you buy an fMRI, it does not have a scale on the front after you attach a patient to it that gives you a pain reading, right? These machines are not explicitly scanning pain. What are they testing? What are these machines looking at? What are they finding? I mean, I think the answer is brain activity, but I'd like a little more specificity because then the second question, right, is what does what do these tests about brain activity or whatever potentially tell us about pain? fMRI machines just provide evidence of a change in state from time one to time two. So a person who is a research subject who sees a neutral stimulus, let's say a visual stimulus, and then sees a test stimulus that is emotionally evocative in some way, we might see some change in brain activity from state one to state two. And then we've learned something about which parts of the brain become activated in a response to this kind of stimulus. And then we have to be careful not to overinterpret it because uh, that same kind of change may be evident in different kinds of tasks. So you're absolutely right that brain imaging in the first instance is just showing us via changes in blood flow, the selective areas of activation and deactivation 
function in response to a stimulus compared to the absence of the stimulus or a neutral stimulus. With pain, this is extremely interesting because you can take somebody who's in a neutral state, experiences a neutral stimulus, then apply a moderately painful stimulus. You know, these tests have to pass IRBs and see how the brain responds to this acute pain stimulus. This is why uh, pain was actually one of the first areas to start to be explored systematically after the advent of fMRI about 1997. So at first, researchers were just using fMRI to see what does the brain do when uh, the body is subject to an acute pain stimulus. And now, over tens of thousands of trials and comparing these acute pain stimulus response scans to non-acute pain stimulus response scans, it's possible to predict with a very high degree of accuracy uh, when researchers are blinded to which subjects are exposed to which condition, which scans belong to subjects who were experiencing the acute pain stimulus. So this technology is telling us a couple of things that are uh, illuminating, if you will. One, what happens in the brain when it's creating this conscious response to the pain experience. And two, it's giving us an ability to make a prediction with a fairly high degree of confidence as to who is or is not experiencing acute pain. It also has taken away from current pain treatment, if not yet discourses around pain in law. Some of the pejorative subjectivity that had previously influenced this debate about whether people um, are exaggerating, because we see that heightened distress in response to pain matches brain activity in somatosensory areas that we would expect to correlate with stimulus. So greater distress, greater magnitude of response. At the same time, acute pain is not usually much of an issue in law. Purely transient pain may make up part of a wrongful death claim or part of a tort claim, uh, but it's unusual. What comes into the legal system much more is chronic pain. Chronic pain has always had a deeply mysterious character in culture and in law. Uh, when chronic pain appears as an ongoing phenomenon, not correlated to a specific individual stimulus, explanations throughout history have ranged from spirit possession to uh, Freudian repression of penis envy to much more recently in the late 20th and early 21st century, um, mute responses to patriarchy where the body is speaking when the voice cannot. So it's it's been a kind of a blank screen onto which cultural theories have been mapped which doesn't do very much for the person in pain. What fMRI has been able to show is that the brains of people experiencing chronic pain show several kinds of consistent functional impairments and structural modifications over time. And the longer a person experiences chronic pain and the more severe the extent of their pain, the greater extent to which their brain functionally and structurally remodels. So although it would be wonderful if we didn't need machines to tell us that people's lived experience is real, the consistency across subjects and the extent of neurological remodeling that helps perpetuate these kinds of syndromes tells us that the pain is real and helps to provide both a mechanism to explain how this kind of pain occurs and uh, for clinicians, new targets for how to treat chronic pain and how to do drug development. What it tells us in law is that we probably need to rethink the way in which 
which chronic pain, emotional pain, and acute pain have been treated differently. The law does a good job with acute pain. If somebody hits another person with a hammer, we can roughly gauge the distress the other person suffered and give them damages. But in the areas of emotional pain and chronic pain, we've differentiated and said, well, chronic pain is only real if it's attached to some other disorder that's capable of producing this. For example, if a person had a hip replacement that went wrong and the ill-fitting implant continues to press on a nerve every day. That kind of chronic pain that remains stimulus-response, stimulus-response continuously is compensable and cognizable in law. But other forms of chronic pain, which make up the vast majority of chronic pain, isn't directly cued to a stimulus or to any stimulus that we currently know how to uh, image or identify. And when this kind of pain is brought into legal contexts, particularly in the disability context, uh, the pain Pain is not compensable. Our disability regulations say that although regulators can't fully discount subjective reports of pain, they can't be the basis for a disability finding. And without that other condition, the ill-fitting hip replacement, for example, it's just not a recognized condition and certainly not a listed impairment. Many chronic pain syndromes, though, are just pain syndromes. They're not indicative of some other problem or disease or pathology. The pain syndromes are diseases in themselves. Further, because these pain syndromes have significant effects on people's cognition, memory, emotional self-regulation, and mood, it's easy to perceive people with these conditions as um, just needy, just neurotic, just suffering from emotional problems. And I use that just in quotation marks because emotional problems are real too. And if all behavior is subserved by our brain states, there's a distinct neurobiology to those conditions too. But it uh, it leaves claimants in this very difficult bind when they have a chronic pain condition, that either their pain isn't real if it can't be traced to some underlying source, or if their pain is real, it must be the manifestation of a psychiatric condition. If it is the manifestation of a psychiatric condition, then a person may be able to get some compensation for it if they can create a causal story in tort, or if they can show it disables them from working in disability, but it's an extremely difficult road to hoe, and uh, it's not medically or experientially accurate. What brain imaging can do then is not necessarily tell us which individual has a chronic pain condition, but it can help us at the aggregate level reconceptualize what these disorders are and give us a biology for how they come about. Then that biology can inform the way the social security disability system regulates and adjudicates, and it can inform the way federal courts hearing appeals and state courts hearing court matters can deal with pain-related claims in the cases that come before them in ways that are both more biologically accurate and more uh, respectful to claimants and that provide a better yardstick for separating legitimate claims from uh, likely less legitimate claims. So I understand the, the idea of dealing with this at the aggregate level, but not everyone is like us, right? Some attorney is going to turn up in a case holding an fMRI printout and trying to get that admitted into evidence. What sorts of claims 
are we seeing with these this type of activity? And what's the right answer to the admissibility question, if there is one? At this point, the right answer to the admissibility question is not to admit the brain scan of an individual party to support or refute that individual's claimed pain, because there is currently no standardization of testing protocols, of types of uh, procedures to put the subject through. We don't know if the person has cherry-picked the scan most favorable to their case. Who is performing the scan? There isn't any uh, set of qualifications that would give us confidence that the operator is doing this in a rigorous way. And any one scan taken in isolation doesn't mean very much. So if I were a judge, I would exclude it without hesitation. What I would admit if I were a judge is an expert who is going to testify to a jury or to the bench in a bench trial to explain how the brain can produce chronic pain states and what kinds of causes can lead to them, what kinds of impairments we likely would see in them, and how that relates to the neurobiology of pain. I would accept that kind of expert testimony as essential background because the kinds of pains that we experience, most of us, acute pain, don't teach us anything about chronic pain. So when we think about what's helpful to the trier of fact, what's admissible under state and federal rules of evidence, we realize that the trier of fact really has no basis for knowing what these conditions are that they have never experienced and that culture tells them to be suspicious about. So I see a clear role for expertise there in the courtroom, even though not at the individual brain scan level. Well, thank you, Amanda. I really appreciate such a clear uh, account of the distinction between chronic and acute pain. And I think for anyone that hasn't experienced chronic pain, um, it raises some, I think, very interesting philosophical issues and legal issues about what it even means to have the equivalent of a jury of one's peers or a, a regulatory stake that, that can understand one's plight, um, reminding me of some of your work on the disability determination process. I think that, you know, unfortunately, we're running out of time at this point, but I was just wondering if you might be able to uh, give a sense of the guidelines uh, in the recent uh, consensus document that you were part of that was published in Nature about potential future use of neuromarkers of pain uh, to ensure that we don't replay uh, the unfortunate history of phrenology or other uh, pseudoscience or unduly restrict um, the legal recognition of individuals' pain states. The article that recently appeared uh, was the work of a group of scientists, researchers, clinicians, uh, Hank Greeley at Stanford University and myself, trying to establish consensus guidelines that the International Association for the Study of Pain would be comfortable recommending as sufficiently rigorous for the use of pain imaging in courtrooms. We had two goals in establishing this project. The first is for pain itself. The second is to recognize that there may be a leading edge or a leading wedge to try to get brain scans into court, brain scans of subjective states. And so we hope that by establishing some guidelines for the consistency of brain scans, for the research programs that would be necessary to solve issues like the reverse inference problem and the number of trials necessary to have known confidence intervals for the results of brain scans, that we could be providing a template to future work if brain scans are sought to be used to establish that a person
person is, for example, unusually impulsive or unusually aggressive or not remorseful in a criminal case. Um, they are designed to be appropriately cautious and yet allow for the rapid development that we can't yet even predict in the coming fusion of fMRI, other brain imaging technologies and modalities, and larger scale uh, data and pattern analysis combined with algorithmic uh, pattern classification systems. Well, I really appreciate that work, Amanda, because I, I recall your earlier mention of phrenology, and I've just been following all of these troubling uh, AI machine learning face recognition studies where people claim that they're able to spot in just physiognomy uh, people's tendency to criminality, whether they're gay or not. Uh, a guy at Stanford, Kozinski, has claimed that uh, eventually just mere face recognition will give us a good sense of people's uh, intelligence and reliability. And uh, I just hope that I'm glad to see Nature and your team pushing back against the rise of these sort of black box methods of inferring uh, characteristics uh, from uh, what uh, Nicholas Rose, I think, quite rightfully once called uh, blobology. Frank, you have done such great work pointing out that a lot of these kinds of pattern classification systems reinscribe existing social inequalities. We see that in facial classification and also in scoring systems that predict recidivism. So we take some priors about who looks criminal and therefore who may be disproportionately policed, use that as a template for criminality, and then identify potential criminals based on it. We could do exactly the same thing with other kinds of facial characteristics, gait, uh, word choice, voice quality, and potentially with brain patterns. So even though these technologies are not themselves inherently oppressive and may be tremendously useful in providing us with information that could be socially positive and productive, we need to always be aware that any system that we develop is not only good, but is likely to reproduce the social inequalities of the society that created it. And that was the Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Postelnik for joining us. Great fun having you on the pod. Finally, Amanda, and uh, great stuff. We post our show notes at twill.com. You can contact me at Nicholas Terry on Twitter and Frank. At Frank Pasquale on Twitter or at HealthPI if you just want uh, health posts. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week and keep your brain activity to yourself. Yeah.